Welcome to the Recruitment Flex with Serge and Shelly. I'm Serge. And I'm Shelly. And we talk all things recruitment starting right now. Bonjour and welcome to the Recruitment Flex. Shelly, we're already in 2024 and I'm excited yeah. for this guest because this guest had pretty amazing predictions in 2023. Let's see if yes. he's as sharp as he was last year. I am so pleased to have back on the show. Big round of applause for the one, the only Mr. Andrew Flowers, who is the chief economist with AppCast. Thanks for coming back on the show, Andrew. Hey, thank you so much, Surgeon Shelley. It's always a pleasure to join the Recruitment Flex. I'm, I'm very happy to be back. <laughs> awesome. We're going to dive right into this. But before we get too far down the path, for those in the audience that maybe didn't hear you last year, or the year before, or the time before that, or somehow they've been living under a rock and they don't know who you are, would you mind just giving us a refresher on who's Andrew and what is Zapcast? Hi, everyone. Good to meet you. I'm the economist at AppCast, and I've been here for about two and a half years. What is AppCast? We're the world leader when it comes to programmatic recruitment advertising technology. We manage more than a billion US dollars a year in job ads, and we've been around for about 10 years. Last year, AppCast acquired Bayard Advertising and really are putting forth a premier service for recruiters when it comes to both programmatic as well as search social and other employer brand creative services. So that's AppCast. And one of the things I've been really honored to build at AppCast is a website, Recruitonomics, that aims mm. to be a, a hub for data-driven research to help recruiters make sense of this economy and this world of work that's always in flux. So I am the director of research for Recruitonomics and lead the data team at AppCast. And thank you so much for doing that because there are so many different reports out there and we read a lot of them and trying to figure out like what makes sense, what is just a rehash of another report. What's really cool about what you're doing is the amount of data that AppCast has is, is really almost unmatched. There's only a couple other players in this industry that can have the data that you have. So for everyone listening, definitely go to Recruitonomics, get the latest reports. There's one that we'll be sharing, which is the 2024 recruitment trends is what mm -hmm. it's called. It's the best in the industry. And every time one comes out, me and Shelly are always talking about it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. We had you on the podcast last year, actually right around this time, and you had two predictions. One of them was that the U.S. economy would not dip into a recession in 23, and it looks like from my own non-economic viewpoint that you were right. <laughs> Can you maybe look back on 2023 and give us a breakdown of how the labor market shaped up? Well, you know... To focus on the U.S., but we can talk about Canada and Europe as well. But to focus on the U.S., 2023 was a pretty successful year for the U.S. labor market. We added over 2.7 million new jobs in 2023. We saw that the unemployment rate remained low. It ended the year below 4%. So what we saw was a cooling in the labor market, right, where employment growth slowed as 2023 went along. And that's consistent with this idea of the higher interest rates that were meant to curb inflation was going to 
pump the brakes on the labor market. And so we saw a cooling labor market, but it remained strong in the sense that there's still a lot of job openings, more job openings than unemployed job seekers, for example, and a low unemployment rate. So in the sense of having a soft landing, the U.S. did, it seems, avoid a recession last year where we had inflation cool and trend downward while the labor market remained strong. So that's how 2023 for the U.S. really landed. I think for Canada and Europe, it's a bit more mixed. I think Canada ended the year on a weaker note and Europe as well was mixed with Germany falling into a technical recession briefly last year uh, and the U.K. also sluggish in its economy. But the U.S. has really been a powerhouse and in 2023, it definitely avoided a recession. When you look at any indicators like household income after inflation and taxes are factored in, or you look at industrial production in terms of manufacturing, but other indicators really point to a healthy GDP growth above 2% for 2023. By all accounts, we definitely avoided a recession. Will that continue in 2024? That's something we'll discuss. (laughs) One of the things that you mentioned last year was there's two labor markets that are very different as far as one that is very active and one that's challenging depending on the vertical you're in. The data really show that at the end of the year, does it show that we're still working almost in two different labor markets depending on what your skill set is and what vertical you're in? Yeah, there's definitely truth to this idea that there's no one single labor market. And I think last year in 2023, that became even truer because when we started 2023, about a year ago, there was a lot of fear, particularly in the tech industry, right? There was headline after headline from Google and Meta and Apple about layoffs. And it wasn't just tech. It was other white collar or or highly educated, highly paid profession, finance and marketing and sales. A lot of these so-called white collar occupations sold quite a slump in early 2023. And there was a bit of a recovery as the year went along, but nothing quite like what we saw in the other labor market, the other side. When we think about manufacturing, construction, even other standing up highly paid professions like healthcare, direct care providing professions that aren't so-called sitting down jobs, those Blue collar or standing up professions were really robust. So nursing, construction, and so forth, really ended the year quite strong. The other prediction that you had was around pay transparency. If we looked at when we talked last year, I think Colorado has been in the books for a while, and there was New York and California coming on play. And I'm not as familiar with the US pay transparency law, so I just Googled it quickly, and it looks like there's over 10 states now that have come online. Are you surprised by that? Because it definitely aligns with what you said at the start of the year. No, I'm not surprised, Surgeon. And I think this trend could continue further. So just last year, California, New York State, as you mentioned, really came online with their pay transparency laws, uh, requiring it not just upon request, but actually in the job description itself. But it's not just those big states like California and New York that launched or implemented pay transparency last year. There's other states that passed new laws. So actually the state I I live in, I I live outside of Boston. So in Massachusetts, we saw in Illinois, we saw in Hawaii. So new states came to the pay transparency game, so to speak, in 2023. And so in 2024, they'll begin to implement 
those laws or proposed laws will advance further this year. Pay transparency, if you think about it to take a step back, it's really driven by the higher bargaining power of workers, right? Job seekers now know that they're in demand and recruiters know that it's no longer dime a dozen to pick great candidates that you have to go out and find better talent to power your organization. So with the job seekers having the upper hand, there's been a movement in recent years to kind of pressure through legislation pressure government regulation to require those recruiters, those employers, to provide the job seeker with pay transparency up front. And that macro trend of higher labor scarcity is going to continue in the near term, and that will drive further pay transparency laws. One of the things that you mentioned last year, and I was a little bit surprised when you mentioned it, is companies that post a role with pay transparency they actually get less applicants. And that seems so counterintuitive. I never caught that during the interview, but when I was re-listening to it, I'm like, well, that's interesting. Can you dig in a little bit deeper of why that is? And what does your data show? We started with when we talked about there's no one labor market. An important caveat here is that there's no one kind of job posting either with transparent salary up front. What we found is that for most job postings, when you post a salary, there's going to be some job seekers that realize that's not for me. Maybe the job salary is just too low and they're going to forego yeah. even applying for the job. And so that's what we mean when we say on average, a typical job posting with salary transparency will have more self-sorting beforehand. So fewer yeah. applications, but more high quality applications yeah. from job seekers who match to that salary range. That's an average. And so all averages can lie. And there are some postings I've definitely seen where they were transparent with the salary range. And especially if it's on the high end, if you're like, hey, we're advertising for a CEO with a million dollar salary, that's going to attract a lot of applicants. Now, they're not all going to be qualified, but high salaries will definitely attract more applicants, all things equal. But when you take a step back and realize that With pay transparency as a whole, it's probably going to lead to better matching. And that counterintuitively involves fewer applicants up front as people self-sort. That makes perfect sense. Because honestly, when is it good to have more? Not in recruitment. Unless, of course, you're, you're looking to fill hundreds of the same job, which I think is where pay transparency is best served is when you you need to hire 1,200 housekeepers and the pay is the pay. Yes. So there's no negotiating. Can you do the job? Are you willing to do the job? Can you get to work on time versus the higher salary? It does. It makes perfect sense. So AppCast recently released its 2024 recruiting trends report, Love. Always do. Can't yes. get enough. <laughs> and the number one trend you see that hiring will slow down, but not stop. And it's unlikely to get any easier. Can you talk a little bit more about what AppCast was expecting in 2024? Yeah, I like to use a color analogy, right? And so if you think of 2020, right, when COVID hit and we had a recession, in terms of colors, the labor market was like a flashing red, right? It was bad, bad, bad. And then since then, it's been a flashing green, maybe even a, a neon green, which is like booming. We're having lots of job openings, tons of hiring, elevated wage growth. What I expect in 2024 is kind of a beige, kind of a boring, old, stable beige color where you'll expect hiring to normalize back to a pre-COVID level. What that means is it's going to be slowing, 
but it's going to cool from like a white hot to like a red hot to just kind of a simmer this year. So I know I'm mixing metaphors here, but I expect a kind of beige colored labor market or a kind of simmering temperature level labor market where it's still strong on the merits. It's not going to have any collapse. I don't expect job losses in 2024. I don't expect a major recession to lead to a spike in unemployment, at least for the US in 2024. But I do expect cooling in this normalization. We're slouching towards beige is the way I would put it. (laughs) Would an election happening in 2024 in the US and obviously interest rates being a key factor in how the economy runs, and, and I know the government and the Federal Reserve don't get together, but could you see the interest rates come down so the economy is hotter during an election? Is that possible? Or am I just a stupid Canadian thinking there might be something? You watch to too much TV. <laughs> this is this is a great question. Yes, it's politically charged. So the question is. Will the Fed maybe be politically pressured to cut interest rates to help the incumbent president ahead of an election later this year in 2024? So here's my take on this. I do think the Fed is probably done raising interest rates. And we've seen that in recent months. It's signaled, hey, not quite mission accomplished with inflation, but inflation trends have come a long way from the really bad situation of 2021, 2022. In 2023, there was a lot of progress made on the inflation normalization front. So in 2024, a lot of finance people are expecting rate cuts because they think, okay, well, the soft landing's here. We avoided a recession. Now give me the lower rates because inflation's not a problem. Rates are too high. I actually think this is my take is that I don't really expect much change in interest rates for most of 2024. I think there's definitely a investors who want rate cuts, and there's definitely like Joe Biden would love rate cuts to give a little tailwind to his campaign, give a little tailwind to consumer spending with lower car loan interest rates and lower mortgage rates throughout the year. But I actually think that the Fed, for the exact reasons you asked that question, Serge, about perceptions of political bias, for that exact reason, I think the Fed is going to go into a holding pattern where they're going to be freezing their actions until after the election. If I had to bet, I would say, unless the economic data trends change one way or the other, the Fed doesn't want to cut rates too early because it doesn't want to declare, hey, mission accomplished, only to see inflation rear its head again. For that reason, for the political bias perception that would come with it, it's going to hold off on cutting rates. But at the same time, the economy, or at least inflation, is looking good enough that I don't expect further rate hikes this year. So I actually think rates are going to kind of remain relatively high for most of this year. Hmm. Thank you. Do you know something you were talking about just a minute ago, and I'm wondering if we can circle back because you hit on something that really piqued my interest. And that is this categorization of standing up jobs and sitting down jobs. Is that an Andrew Flowers original? I I don't know (laughs) if I can cite anyone. I'm sure someone else thought of that. But I just, the genesis of this phrasing comes from I just don't love the white collar, blue collar. It seems kind of outdated. Yes. Thank you. And really what it comes down to is think about the laptop class versus the people who do direct production work or care work. And Mm. so very highly skilled, highly paid people do, I think, 
non-laptop class works. Think of like physicians as an extreme example, like nurses, other people in healthcare, that's direct care providing work. It's similar in the sense that it's standing up with manufacturing, construction, other production jobs. So another example in the standing up category would be education. We've seen a huge rise in education employment growth in the last few months in the US. That's the phrasing I like. It's the standing up versus the the laptop class, the, the sitting down jobs. And I say that as a card carrying member of the laptop class, someone who works in that kind of tech, marketing, sales, finance space, right? Anything professional and business services, those so-called white collar jobs are the ones that really have been lackluster recently. I just love it. I love it. As soon as I heard you talking about it and I thought, this is what we have been needing in our space because it's almost like trying to divide blue collar, white collar, or trying to drive a wedge between us. And it didn't yeah. really describe what we were differentiating from. Thank you. Round of applause. Out of the recruiting trends report, anything that either surprised you or really excites you? Well, I'll give you a hope and a worry. Or a fear, a hope and a fear. So the hope from the trends that we specified in this report that I think is really interesting is when it comes to employer branding and and based on survey data we've conducted, there's a huge trend towards employers highlighting social responsibility with the express purpose to attract younger workers. In other words, this Gen Z group of younger workers judging an employer brand by their commitment to social responsibility. And so in terms of a hope, I see this as a kind of beneficial change, but it's also just a purely mathematical one. And I think this goes unrecognized, but right now, millennials are the biggest group in the labor force in the Western world with Gen X just behind them. But as of this year, it has flipped that no longer are baby boomers number three. Gen Z have surpassed baby boomers as the third largest generation in the labor force. And so because of that, and because of their beliefs about seeing a desirable employer having a commitment to social responsibility, that trend is a positive thing that I want to highlight from our report. But on the flip side, the fear, the, the concern I think I have, it's a very valid trend. We talk about it, but it's about how work from home or remote work is really going to bite this year the commercial real estate market. We obviously have seen commercial real estate go through a really tough period as vacancy rates increase, as we see less utilization of office space because of work from home policies. That has been only building. It's not going away. It hasn't gone away at all in 2023, despite all the return to office policies. And in terms of the actual commercial real estate market, in terms of financing and pricing, I think it's really going to hit home in a negative way in 2024. Now, do I think it's so significant that on its own, it's going to cause a recession? No, I don't think it's that bad. But I do think the commercial real estate market is in for a big year of upheaval this coming year. Can you go a little bit deeper in that? Because we're seeing that obviously in San Francisco, New York, uh, even here in Calgary, Alberta, we have a vacancy rate, office vacancy rate of around 30%. Mm. Because one of the predictions I had was we're getting back to pre-pandemic levels of people working in the office. Like It's definitely showing some signs that by the end of this year, we'll pretty much be in the office. But what's the correlation between, say, vacancy rates in offices to the labor market? Is there one? Is there a connection there? 
Yeah, for sure. I'll give you two interesting statistics. So one statistic comes from this great survey called, and you can find it online at workfromhomeresearch.com. It's run by these economists out of Stanford, the wfhresearch.com. And what they found is when they surveyed employees, the percentage of working days done remotely has gone up fivefold from pre-COVID. So around 5% of all working days were done remotely pre-COVID. And now in 2023, it was around 25, 28%. So around a five-fold increase in the amount of remote work done in terms of working days done. Definitely, it's come down a bit. So Serge, to your point, there's been a kind of seesaw correction from its heyday during the pandemic and immediately afterwards, but it hasn't gone back nearly to what it was. And so how do we correlate that impact of more remote work? How do we correlate that to the commercial real estate market? So how does the labor market of flexible work impact a whole industry? Second statistic I'll, I'll cite here is this cool company called Castle. And so what do they do? They have the, like the security systems going in and out of offices, the swipes, yeah, okay. the badges yeah. that you swipe. And so in the US, they track data at a regular basis for like the top 10 metro areas. So San Francisco, New York. And what you can see is you can see the, the number of swipes that are being used in these office buildings over time, and then they construct a national average. And so this has been recovering. Again, Serge, to your point, it's been increasing. But guess where it has kind of hit and plateaued? Around 50% of what it was pre-COVID. So they're seeing only about half as many office swipes of workers today than they are pre-COVID. So it's going to have a kind of domino effect. And we saw this with Meta, the Facebook yeah. company. They were willing to pay, I think, a hundred million pound fine to get out of this London lease. They had pre-COVID engaged in this huge lease for office space in London. And then they realized they just have so many distributed employees, so many remote employees. They backed out of that. They were willing to eat that fee. And I think, again, there's a recovery and more people come into the office, but I just don't think it's going to go back to where it was pre-COVID. I think work from home is really here to stay and it has a big impact on commercial real estate. Thank you for that. And I think where my prediction comes from is very localized. It went from fully remote to hybrid to two days. And now a lot of these big employers locally are getting everyone in the office five days a week. And I think the numbers will change 100% back to pre-COVID. Yeah, you're probably right. That's not going to happen. But talking about predictions, I'm very curious to hear what Andrew Flowers is predicting for 2024. <laughs> I predict that we're going to see the soft landing hopes starting to flourish, the green shoots of that hope in 2023 come to full growth in 2024, for the U.S. at least. I think the U.S. has enough consumer spending momentum to power through any bumps in the road, like geopolitical risk or maybe a resurgence of some higher inflation or commercial real estate, as I mentioned, it's going to be a bumpy road. It's never perfectly smooth. But the momentum of consumer spending, which is driven by this strong labor market, I think will power us through to a real kind of definitive soft landing in 2024. But do I expect 2024 to be a boom year in terms of the stock market or the housing market? or even in terms of employment growth. No, the best analogy of, of what I expect this year is what I said earlier. I think we're moving towards beige. I think so many people like to make predictions that are like, we're going to shoot out of a rocket. It's going to be a, an explosive growth in the next few quarters. Or on the other hand, they'll say we're headed for recession, a major market correction. 
I have a boring prediction, which in statistical terms, it's called like a random walk. It's basically like a year from now, it'll be roughly what it is like now. The last few years have been a roller coaster where we've yo-yoed up and down with all the disruptions of COVID. Now, barring any kind of pandemic or you know geopolitical event, which would of course disrupt the world economy, barring anything like that, that's unforeseen. I do expect it to be a boring but good year in 2024. If we go north of the border to Canada, any thoughts there? Because our, our economy is a little bit different right now. That's that's such a good point. I'm so glad you mentioned it because I wanted to put a pen in this because I actually think Canada is on a little bit shakier ground. And it's actually quite different. You just said it, Serge. So in the US, what are we seeing right now? We're seeing a lot of job growth from services sectors or from the government. So healthcare, education, leisure and hospitality. And we're seeing a mirroring of that in Canada in the sense that a lot of the job growth has been services based. But the thing about the US is our kind of production jobs, our manufacturing construction industries have held steady or been slightly down. Whereas in Canada, there's really been a pullback in manufacturing. There's really been a pullback in kind of production jobs. And so I think the weakness in Canada, when you look at the three-month and six-month monthly job gains, they've really started to dip down through 2023. So down to around 23,000 jobs on average per month. That's half the rate of what it was just a year ago. So I am concerned about the Canadian labor market in 2024, much more so than I am the U.S. labor market. If I had to put odds to it, if there's a a 15% chance of a recession in the U.S. in 2024, I would think it's probably double that, something like 30% chance of a recession for Canada in 2024. Really interesting. And it's not very often that I get the opportunity to talk to economists. And I have a question for you that's Canadian focused. So one of the things with our housing market, we've seen like a hockey stick curve up on pricing. What's also happened is we've taken a lot more immigration than a lot of our G7 counterparts. So we're in a situation that housing is becoming really expensive. And we have a lot of new Canadians that are having a really hard time affording housing in Canada. What's your take on this? Because it's a huge factor in our labor market because we do need the people to come into Canada so we can get them to work and fill these roles. But it's so expensive right now. Yeah, I, I think that housing and its link to recruiting is going to be a dominant discussion point for the next decade because oh. a lot of job growth and businesses are built in not necessarily the biggest metro areas, but whether it's even Ottawa or Cleveland or, or any major city, the density of job growth is urban, right? And in the Western world, so the UK, Canada, Uh, the U.S., there's this housing supply crunch that's tight such that it's causing, with an influx of population or an influx of job seekers, it's causing really extreme pressure in the housing market. So when you look at like house price to income ratios, right? So the thing I talk about generationally is say 50 years ago, how many years of income did it take to buy the average house? And it was like three, three to four. If you made $50,000 was an average Inflation adjusted income that year, 50 years ago, it took $150,000, $200,000 in today's dollars to buy a home back then. But today, these ratios are like five, six, seven. And when you get into expensive cities, they're even higher. 
And to go back to the point about Canada, Canada is a victim of its own success in the sense that a lot of countries like Germany and the UK wish they could have more labor supply, more population growth. They're seeing population decline. And in some sense, Canada has been looked to as a great model with attracting immigrants, attracting workers. But you're a victim of your own success in the sense that your housing market is now under extra pressure because those ratios are only going up higher. It's For younger generations, it's incredibly hard to buy a house, start a family, start a career in these expensive metro areas that hold most of the job opportunities. So I think this is going to be a dominant point of conversation. It is in Canada now. It, it is in the UK. It's at least in the major cities in the US. It's a big point of conversation. But uh, unless we do something about our land use and how we think about both immigration and housing supply, it's not going away. So, Andrew, question for you, specifically around our people, that is talent acquisition and recruiters, because when you talk about the yo-yo, oh my God, I think the talent acquisition industry sector was definitely on that up and down motion. What are your thoughts about 2024 for those of us that are in recruitment talent acquisition? So I have a little bit of bad news, and then I'll end it with a silver lining. So the bad news is if you take my forecast as gospel, let's say it comes true, what does it mean? It means that hiring is going to slow, but also mm-hmm. because of there being a less dynamic, elastic labor market, it also means that quits are going to slow and there's going to be less kind of mm-hmm. turnover. Both of those trends point to, frankly, less demand for recruiting services or talent acquisition needs. So that's the kind of, ooh, bad news. Because even if the labor market seems strong and you're hearing me brag about how there's a soft landing and low unemployment, you're probably saying, wait a second, I'm just not seeing as much need for recruiting. Well, both can be true at the same time in the sense that we're at a good level, but the rate of change is slowed. So that's the kind of bad news. And I want to be realistic here that I don't think that there's going to be a 2021 in the books for 2024, where uh, as in a year like 2021, where there was just explosive growth in job postings for recruiters, as well as job postings and job openings overall. That's the kind of sour note, but I want to give you a silver lining, which is this. A lot of what's driving this correction in talent acquisition and recruiting is this white collar, this tech session that we talked about, the kind of decline in needs for these highly skilled, highly educated workers. What I don't think is going to go away in 2024. So if you're a recruiter listening to this, if you're a TA leader, what I think you have in 2024 is an opportunity in healthcare, in education, in government, in these sectors that are less cyclically sensitive, right? These are sectors that don't go up and down with the business cycle, with a recession or a boom, but they're sectors that because of an aging population and because of where we are in terms of government spending and investments, there's a lot of opportunity. I would say those three sectors, healthcare, education, government, and if I had to add more, I would add any kind of industrial sectors, at least in the US, in terms of construction and manufacturing and skilled trades, those positions have need for recruiters and need for TA leaders. But I think a lot of TA leaders or recruiters who are struggling right now, they're probably coming from like tech sectors, finance, market. And so those folks, I don't expect a rebound in those positions in 24, but go elsewhere. There's good getting elsewhere. So explore your horizons. I love that because that is something we talked about in December 
It may not be sexy, but boy, if you became a recruitment specialist for electricians, yes, <laughs> you'll be in a, a really well-positioned place, certainly for anywhere in the US, but specifically California. It goes to what you were talking about, Andrea, about the two different labor economies. And I think you just described it perfectly right there, because when it comes to recruiting, some are going to be hot, some are not going to be. So Shelly, I know you probably feel smarter after this conversation, as always. Andrew, if anyone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way to get a hold of you? And obviously, appcast.io, correct? Yes, appcast.io is the best way to check out AppCast. One other website to check out is recruitonomics.com, where you'll get free data-driven information every week about the labor market. We cover the US, Canada, Europe. So check us out there. You can get in touch with me through uh, Recruitonomics or through formerly known as Twitter or X. You can follow me on X at Andrew Flowers. It's just first, last name. That's my handle, at Andrew Flowers. I'm happy to engage with recruiters, TA leaders, HR leaders, and economists and people who are just curious about the world of work. I'm happy to get in touch. Andrew, thank you so much for coming on. And audience, thank you for listening. Au revoir. Shelly, let's face it. Texting candidates is the easiest way to hire quicker today. But your cell phone doesn't connect to your ATS. You're sharing your personal number with strangers. That's pretty scary, right, Shelly? And Mm. it's not even legally compliant. Mm, This is where our friends at Rectex come in. They've created simple yet powerful text recruiting software that works with your ATS. Plus, it's designed by recruiters for recruiters, so you know it works. To learn more and book a demo, visit www.rectx.com. Mention the Recruitment Flex and get 10% off annual plans.